0: profit organization fighting for you know the right to breathe clean air wait a minute have i been muted this
1: whole time guys (laughs) oh boy i'm so sorry i have no idea what part of that you heard um i guess you did hear me playing the clips but not talking about or contextualizing the clips so let me just say again that unfortunately it looks like sparky didn't realize he needed an iphone and it's my fault i didn't check up with him um so it looks like unless he can get one from his sister-in-law uh and a little bit then he won't be joining us. Um, I said that you should go ahead and get in line and queue up if you have any questions or comments about the most recent episode of bad faith uh, where I talked to two law professors about the Mississippi Abortion case that's poised to overturn Roe. I mentioned that it was interesting to see so much feedback on the Patreon page, at least that indicated that people have much more ambiguous, ambiguous feelings about abortion than I might expect from a leftist podcast. And it really speaks to me about how the left should consider um, framing these kinds of issues going forward because an overwhelming support for the legal right to abortion obscures, in some ways, some hesitation that a lot of folks feel about the choice itself. Um, and I also mentioned that if you are Patreon curious, um, but not yet a patron, you can catch a substantial 30 minute ish hunk of the conversation over at uh, the Bad Faith YouTube channel. We appreciate it if you like those videos, share them, and subscribe to the channel so you don't miss. Be- future drops. Now, because Sparky is delayed slash unable to join, uh, I'm going to go ahead and play the Rashida Tlaib clip that started all of this. Um, Rashida Tlaib uh, uh, was on that house floor talking about uh, the move to cancel student loan debt and recent Bad Faith podcast guest Batya Angersagen responded. But let's first listen to the clip that started it all.
0: I worked full time Monday through Friday and took weekend classes to get my law degree and still close to $200,000 in debt. And I still owe about $70,000. And most of it was interest. Most of it was our own government making money and profit off of me. And guess what? I didn't go to the for-profit entities. I went to legal aid. I worked at the nonprofit organization fighting for you know, the right to breathe clean air, to fight for the worker that was getting their wage uh, you know, taken and stolen from their employer. I went and worked on immigrant rights and so much more. And all of that to say, we have to stop treating as if folks that are paying for education, as if they bought some bougie car or some big, you know, something beyond. No, they were seeking an education. I worked. All right. So in response to that, Bhatia Angersargan tweeted, it's
1: astonishing that someone who makes $174,000 a year isn't embarrassed to ask working class taxpayers to pay off her law school debt. At least they're honest. $50,000 in student loan forgiveness is a bailout for highly educated elites and the squad are their patron saints. All right. Now, predictably, that set the left off. Um, Her follow-up tweet said the highest income, 40 percent of households owe almost 60 percent of the outstanding education debt and make almost three quarters of the payments. Lowest income, 40 percent of households hold just under 20 percent and only make 10 percent of the payments. Benefits of proposals to forgive $50,000 in student loans, quote, would go to the top 40 percent of households because they have the bulk of the loans. Borrowers with advanced degrees represent 27 percent of borrowers and would get 37 percent of benefit. Per Brookings, also relevant, quote, over the course of a full-time career, the typical U.S. worker with a bachelor degree earns nearly $1 more than a similar worker with just a high school diploma. That's an interesting note for someone who recently on the podcast argued against um, making college free and therefore accessible to all, but that's a different conversation. Maybe she'll join in and and push back against that again. Um, She additionally tweeted, people often respond by pointing out that there are people who took out loans who are poor and struggling. So why is the proposal for blanket forgiveness? That tells you who it's really for, which is the Democrats' new base, highly educated elites. We could definitely address that point. Uh, And finally, the pandemic made the college slash working class divide in America so unbelievably clear. The economy for the college educated rebounded within months. It's still not done for the working class, yet the squad is out here demanding working class taxpayers to pay off student loans. And that's supposed to be social justice? Come on. All right. All right. Okay, so our friend Sparky, who was not able to join the podcast, nonetheless did a really excellent thread addressing some of these points. Um, Before I get to Sparky's response, I'll go ahead and take the first call from Gregory. What say you, Gregory? Just go ahead and unmute yourself when you're ready.
2: Hey, how you doing?
1: I'm doing well. How are you? Good,
2: thanks. You know, I've, I've been thinking about the student loan debt issue that we have, and you know, everybody's against it in one way or another, but. It's kind of simple to stop it, at least, is if they just stop guaranteeing it right now, there will at least no more debt be piled on to people who can't afford it. Yet, every time people talk about it, they keep who are in power to do something about it, have not stopped the program. It's the program that continues through the government to guarantee the loans and I'm just going to stop guaranteeing the loans. People won't take those loans. They will find a new solution. I know it's going to take a while to work through the system, but as long as they're guaranteeing loans, they're going to be given out nonstop. And they're being given to people who obviously don't understand them or can't afford them. And in the long run, it's hurting them in their lives to get to the next level of, you know, their class that they're trying to reach out, get out of. So just my thought on it.
1: Yeah. So I think that's an important point, Gregory. I think that part of what it gets obscured in these conversations is that the enormous exponential rise in the cost of college and law school is a consequence of these federally backed loans. Obviously, we're talking about 18 or 21 year olds uh, for grad school, approximately who don't have a credit history being offered these loans ostensibly because there was an understanding that we live in an economy where getting at least a bachelor's degree was beneficial, not just for them and their personal upward mobility, but for society as a whole. And the government wanted more people to have access to college. Uh, and as a consequence also um, uh, not only did college prices go up, but the interest rates in that loan, those loans are incredibly high. You know, the argument being, Oh, we, this, this, This debt isn't guaranteed, so we have to do it put it up high because they're just kids and they can't pay, right, except for the debt is guaranteed. So we have people who who have, you know, mortgages for million-dollar homes paying interest rates that are a small fraction of what student debtors pay. I have a 7.5% interest rate personally, and if I were to buy a home or a car or any other luxury purchase as um, uh, the congresswoman described it, as Rashida Talib described it, I would have much less interest to pay back. I've said this before on the podcast, and I'll say it again. My first year paying back loans, and I'm the least sympathetic case in the world, so you shouldn't think about someone like me. If you think about a lawyer, you should think about a lawyer like Rashida Tlaib, who was working in the public interest sector, not earning a lot of money and directly giving back to her community. But even someone like myself, I remember opening you know, my tax form that showed how much interest I paid over the course of the first year paying back my loans. And it was $18,000 in interest and something like $5,000 to the principal. I remember falling to my knees and realizing exactly how long it was going to take to pay this thing off. And my idea of just working in corporate law for a few years and then bouncing to become a journalist or do something else more socially beneficial went right out the window. So I think you're right. What really gets excluded from this conversation is the extent to which policy choices have been made that has put students in a... Vice group And I catch 22 on top of which there has been a really persistent social narrative that says this is 100 percent something you should do. This is not a frivolous choice. Every every message in the world is saying you absolutely should take out this debt. This is a good debt to take on. This is a good risk because the social contract is going to pay off down the line. And what ended up happening was the cost of colleges and in, in graduate schools to not keep up with the expected income that you were going to get coming out of these institutions. And it became a Ponzi scheme. And there has, to to the date, not been a recognition of the extent to which that's the case. Um, So thank you for that, Gregory. All right. So Sparky's response was in three parts. God bless him for keeping it succinct relatively. He says, part one, the federal government doesn't, quote, pay off debt that is owed to itself. Canceling student debt requires no spending. Even if it was spending, federal spending is not, quote, taxpayers paying for things, okay, this is crucial. (laughs) It's student debt cancellation, student debt cancellation. This is not something that comes out of a budget line. This is basically debt that's on the government's books that it just decides not to collect anymore. It's just like what's been happening for the last two years since Donald Trump suspended student debt payments. Frankly, the best thing that's happened to me financially in my entire life because it's enabled me to get ahead of those interest payments and put myself into a position where if if and when student debt kicks back in in January, I actually have some money that I can put to paying off the principal in a substantial way, right? And I, I really hope Democrats are paying attention to this because a very clear narrative Republicans can choose to use if they want is that Donald Trump is the one who put your loans in hiatus and saved you all of that money and ability to pay some other kinds of bills when you were in the middle of this Uh, COVID-driven financial crisis. And as someone who was unemployed for most of last year, I will tell you my ability to stay in my apartment and put my head down and figure out what to do and start a podcast, um, start my own business instead of having to go and, you know, whore myself out to the the lowest bidder was largely because I didn't have that additional $2,000 a month to pony up to my student loans. All right. So, Potis' first point that it's somehow working class people paying for this is completely moot. I would also like to add to Sparky's argument, though, there are a lot of policies that don't enter to the benefit of everyone. Most Americans have health insurance, for instance, despite the fact that there is a health insurance crisis. If there were a plan like Bernie had to cancel all medical debt, someone like myself is young and healthy who has none. I cannot imagine being such a cruel and inhumane person, that I would limit the idea that other people had their medical debt canceled, that I would limit, that I would say something like, oh, well, I'm sick. I'm not sick. I'm healthy. I jog. Why, do you, why should I have to pay for the fact that you have some disease that was arguably preventable? You smoked. Why should I have to pay for your lung cancer treatments? You know, I I support an enormous amount of consumer debt cancellation as well. Bernie had uh, a plan to cap uh, interest rates. Bernie and AOC proposed a plan to cap interest rates at a certain level, et cetera. I have no consumer debt. I couldn't imagine complaining about it. I have no kids. I can't imagine complaining about all the people who got sometimes tens of thousands of dollars and child tax credits that are sorely needed over the course of this pandemic. And for someone who presents themselves as a populist, is arguing that they're a populist, to start trying to argue that the working classes as a whole should be at each other's throats over policies because not every single one on enters the benefit of all of them, I think is a deeply problematic place to start. And if you're, if your first thought is, Well, this isn't working classes getting the benefit of this money. I would like to point out that nobody who has the money to pay for these loans takes out these loans. Of course, people who took out the loans are going to be in a higher income strata. That's the whole point of going to college and taking out the loans is that you earn more money than the average person. The argument is that the cost of college has gone up more than the benefit of the cost of college. And it has caught a lot of people who are middle class in a trap. Where all of the their peers who went to college and law school and grad school for free are off buying houses and getting the full benefit of that education. Well, they're trapped in this limbo where they are paying off their loans for decades on end. And to that point, I want to also interject a, a fact from a Federal Reserve study that showed that national home ownership among young adults has decreased from 2% from 2005 to 2014. The reason the hefty cost of student loan debt. Quote, the author stated that roughly 20% of the decline in home ownership among young adults can be attributed to their increased student loan debts since 2005. Which means more than 400,000 young people would have owned a home in 2014 had it not been the increase in student loan debt between 2005 and 2014. While student loan debt wasn't the sole reason for the drop in home ownership, the Fed analysis found a direct link between student loan debt and the chances of home ownership, stating that a $1,000 increase in student loan debt causes a one to two percentage point drop in the home ownership rate for student loan borrowers during their late 20s and early 30s. Now, this is a point that AOC. Made When she made her remarks on the House floor talking about how all, there are all these articles about how millennials are killing diamonds, millennials are killing homeownership, millennials are killing all of these, um, you know, luck, things that didn't used to be considered luxury goods but are now perceived as such by us because we don't have access to them. We can't afford them. And there's, they're simultaneously complaining about the fact that we're not buying into the economy. We're not recognizing the root cause of that being the case. I'm going to take our next caller. No, no, what do you have to say about all of
0: this?
2: Hi, yeah, I just uh, wanted to know if you can provide a bit of perspective about, like, the uh, basically how much money, like, $200,000 is not. And I know that
3: sounds really crazy to people who are.
1: You're trying to get me canceled now. (laughs) Uh,
3: But I'd say, like, a lot of people don't understand that the people who are the most leveraged uh, and have to take out the most loans in order to get these careers, chances are, don't have those nest eggs are just other sources of income to rely on. So it's not just paying for this education, but paying for survival during that time. Uh, just
2: wondering if you could kind of speak to that because it's, it's an unsympathetic group.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Rashida Tlaib in her remarks actually touched on this, right? She talked about having to work a job or several jobs during law school to pay her way. I know that personally, you know, I had more of a familial support than most people. My, you know, mother at that point was a single parent because my father had passed away, but she, you know, earned a good salary and was able to, you know, send me money if I needed to buy toothpaste and those kinds of things, which a lot of college kids can't say about themselves. But the reality is that I know me personally, I always scrimped and saved and used the absolute least amount of my um tuition allotments, because I was always very clear eyed about the extent to which I was going to have to pay them back at an exorbitant interest rate. Um, And when I was in law school, I was paying down my undergraduate debt, um, which arguably wasn't the most financially (laughs) smart thing to do, given that that interest rate was smaller than my law school interest rate. But still, it's something on people's um, minds. So many kids, especially who don't have the advantage of going to colleges that basically will extend those loans to you. Like my mother went to Howard and talks about how she had to take a semester off of school and almost didn't graduate because she couldn't come up with $400 for the bursar's office and they wouldn't let her register for class. Um, And so many people, and to Rashida Tlaib's point, she didn't go to a for-profit institution, but so many of these for-profit institutions are even more serious in that respect. So this isn't people... I don't know, frivolous. I don't even know, I don't even understand how people could think this is the case, honestly. But no one is purposefully taking out an 8% interest loan who has the money in the bank or who has the resources to borrow from other people. And I had friends and acquaintances in colleges in college who I know just got $80,000 from their parents. You know, and their parents said, oh, you have to pay me back, this money back over time, but not at an interest rate right? That makes a huge difference. And if I checked right now, I'm confident that how many years I, given how many years I am to my payment, that I have paid the $180,000 that I took out. I've paid that. But over the 10-year loan pay, repayment plan that I'm on, I think I end up having to pay $250,000 on the $180,000 that I took out. So again, even if if people like this were advocating for other kinds of solutions, like, I don't know, caps on interest rates, Caps on the total amount that you have to pay back on your loan, a continued extension of this um, loan moratorium for another year or two um, to the first caller's point, um, changing the um, uh, federally backed loan structure so that there's less incentives for institutions to jack up their prices, making public colleges tuition free. So you can really say that someone who chooses to go and take out loans is making a choice as opposed to just choosing between a number of schools, public and private, all of which cost tens of thousands of dollars a year. You know, then I think a lot of these arguments I would take in, in good faith. However, as they're being made currently, not so
0: much. Uh, thank you, No, for that. All right. Uh, next up is Andy. Let's
1: say you,
4: Andy. Hi Bree, I uh, I really appreciate your show. I've been uh, bad faith. I've been listening since the first episode. Uh, something you touched on earlier, uh, you know, talk, you know, make in reference to, uh, setting up like working class people against each other in terms of like policy debates. Uh, for me, I think it's like particularly, I I really feel that not not in relation to like student debt cancellation, but like um, immigration reform. And as a DACA recipient, mm-hmm. uh, something I see a lot, and, it, uh, and especially with uh, your conversation with batia something that really bothered me is when she was like, uh, "You know, oh, you know, protectionism is good." And I mean, I know like a lot of people on the left do agree with that notion. For me, you know, being a DACA recipient, a son of undocumented immigrants sometimes i feel like there's no like there aren't any prominent figures on the left who advocate for us and sometimes i put myself in we're put in this like difficult position where it feels like sometimes the neoliberals are the ones who are adv- advocating for us the most even if it's in like the most cynical way possible and so sometimes I i, I have mm. myself wondering is like as far as like well As far as like being a public leftist figure, is there a tension between wanting to like advocate for policies that would materially improve the conditions of a citizen working class while also advocating for a humane immigration reform? Uh, So I want to know your thoughts on that.
1: Mm. Thank you for that, Andy. That's a really good question. So I think there would be more of a tension If we didn't live in the most resource rich country in the world, (laughs) right? Like, I think there would be more of a tension between this idea of America first, um, a country's obligation first and foremost to its citizens and its global obligations, whether we're talking about immigration, uh, DACA recipients, uh, climate change. Any anything that has a um, global impact, which is most things these days. But the reality is that America doesn't have to make quite as many trade-offs as, as other countries that legitimately have few resources to be distributed. We're a country where we, what, doubled the number of billionaires over the course of this so-called financial crisis, where the second biggest part of the um, 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 Build Back Better is gonna be a tax cut, for the rich, um, you know, where we have, you know, six families owning more wealth, having more wealth than the bottom 50% of Americans. And the idea that, you know, I, I think that it is true that the left should acknowledge the marginal reality and significant perception among working class people that immigration hurts them because I think denying it makes you seem less credible and sort of delusional. I think the effect is overstated, especially by people with, you know, bad faith interests in stoking anti-immigrant sentiment. But I also studies bear out that it is true that there is a negative effect on the bottom tranche of American worker. From immigration. Now, the response to that shouldn't be boo immigrants. It should be we have more than enough resources in this country to eliminate that bottom tranche of American worker. They should everyone in this country is able to be paid a living wage. We have more than enough resources to have a social safety net so that nobody should feel like they're going to be significantly impacted or impacted in the least by um, um, low wage laborers. I also feel like we obviously need to pay attention to the fact that there is some truth to when someone like Bernie Sanders says it was historically the right wingers who wanted to have quote-unquote open borders because they wanted to just take advantage and exploit low wage labor. And that we should have labor laws that protect those people as well for two reasons. One, because we're humanists and we don't want people to be exploited, but also because that exploitation enables the wages to be driven down for Americans, right? So that's a long way of saying we don't actually have those same constrained choices. And this is another version of what um, Heather McGee described in her book. And when she came on the podcast is the zero sum game. And sometimes these thorny questions can be, you know, alleviated by simply backing up and realizing that we're, we're talking about it as though it's a zero sum choice when it really isn't.
4: Thank you, Bree. You know, I think, you know, listening to that, it, it it makes me feel a little bit more at ease because, like again, I feel like there aren't a whole lot of like public leftist figures who are, you know, I, I like as you mentioned, they don't uh, they don't honestly answer, you know, address the Im- thorny immigration question. But at the same time, those that do, it kind of feels like for me as an immigrant, it feels like there's a willingness to throw us under the bus. And so, like for me, you know, obviously I supported Bernie's uh, candidacy. And his policy platform, though you know, if we're being—if I'm being quite honest—most of his policies wouldn't have directly affected me because of my legal status. But you know, in spite of that, I still thought his policy platform was great. But um, at the same time, I just felt like a lot of mm. people tend to be retic- reticent to any progressive immigration reform because of that fact that you mentioned that it does, you know. It does seem to be fact-supported that, you know, unregulated immigration hurts the working class. But um, I appreciate your thoughts on this.
1: Well, I appreciate you um, calling in and listening and asking that that, um, insightful question. Thank you, Andy.
0: All right, let's take um, AK. Um, Unmute yourself when you're ready, AK.
5: Hi, I'm Ananya. I'm calling in from India, actually. I was. Uh, had, Hi there. Happened to be awake for this, so I'm glad I caught it. So, what? I, <laughs>
1: what time is it there? Uh, it's six a.m. right now. Ooh, goodness yep. gracious! Are you waking up, or did you never go to sleep?
5: Oh, uh, I'm just waking up.
1: Okay, all right. Yeah. What's what's your question?
5: So, I mean, I it's a bit of a sort of a tangential thought, um, uh, because it's about sort of you know immigrant students who i mean i think mostly don't even have access to like proper federal loans but um you know, most everyone mm-hmm. like i know um from india who went and studied abroad which inevitably inevitably tends to be sort of the more privileged classes of course um, either end up taking some mm-hmm. kind of sort of crushing loans from i mean i didn't either indian authorities or from the colleges themselves or from sort of the more private predatory sort of cottage industries around these colleges but more often than not because they are from privileged families it's you know their parents sort of life savings kind of on the line um, that they you know spend to get this education and mm-hmm. what that sort of inevit- inevitably leads to and this is also picking up on what you said earlier about how the cost of this education seems to be outpacing the value of it Is that it leads to this calculus where the only way Mm -hmm. this value is being evaluated is uh, through employment metrics. You know, like, I mean, the kind of job one gets or the kind of salaries one gets after this Mm -hmm. education, which, I mean, as anyone who's been to college can attest to the fact that that's rarely the actual felt value of this education. I mean, um, you know, it's a lot of sort of softer, more. Mm -hmm. intangible things of you know born from exposure and culture and stuff like that that really kind of um, you know holds one in good stead going forward but one you know stuck in this kind of debt or stuck in you know the guilt of having taken parental money in the case of lots of Indian immigrants um, the only way you know how to judge whether your education is worth it or not is whether you can you know whether it's followed up by a high-paying job which are hard to yeah. come which are hard to come by in general and definitely hard to come by for immigrants so i was a wondering if you could do yeah. that and just while i have you also just a completely unrelated request if you could have an episode about india and what's happening here maybe have vijay Prashad on i don't know if you know of him uh, he's a sort of leftist journalist commie journalist based in the states yeah i think that he would be an excellent guest for the yeah, podcast 100%. i'm a huge mm-hmm. fan of by the way
1: I think that's a great suggestion. Thank you for that. Um, I'll reach out to VJ and thank you for that question. I think you know you said it. It's it's obviously right and true, and it's really dispiriting that I feel even in my role forced to make the arguments in favor of student debt cancellation and free public college from this really mercenary uh, employment based perspective. Because I think you're right. I think part of what rubbed me the wrong way about my conversation with Batia, and again, I, I appreciate her you know, opening herself up to dialogue with me and being so open about her perspective. But, you know, this idea that it was a, you know, I am an elitist and I'm attacking a working person's dignity for wanting them to have the opportunity should they desire it to get the same access to education that I had. And the reason that that was so dispiriting is because I know that the main driver for me to go to college had very little to do with my uh, educational Opportunities. I mean, as an 18-year-old, honestly, I wasn't really thinking in those terms. I thought of it more as a kind of cultural rite of passage. I thought about it as a continuation of my education. I co- thought about it as me finishing up my growth as an adult and my ability to be a thinking person in the world and, I, and to meet new people and to learn how to engage and debate and, you know, be, be, be an adult, um, and it's really, it's it's one thing to think, oh, you know, working class people shouldn't have access to job opportunities. I mean, that's bad from a materialist perspective. But there's almost something more cynical about saying they shouldn't have access to the intellectual and kind of soul enrichment aspects of getting a higher education, furthering your education. And knowing how how often historically people who have thought to have control over populations have intentionally prevented them from getting education. When I think of my own ancestors in this country for whom it was illegal to read (laughs) and then to be having a conversation about, I mean, they were employable, they were slaves. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it wasn't about employment. It was about keeping them captive and to not see that there is a, a way that whole tranches of our society are also not, don't have access to all of the things that we all understand historically in education make us more free is almost the more cynical and upsetting part of the anti-free public college argument from my perspective. Um, It is a difficult rhetorical question also from someone in my position, you know, how much do I actually want to go ahead and make that argument that we're just talking about? Because I know that that is not only going to fall on deaf ears, it is also going to empower the folks who will say college is just for, you know, young kids to hook up and learn about gay things and, you know, communism, (laughs) you know, and I don't want to, you know, give that argument any quarter, even though I think that rhetorically it's very powerful. I think one way to start to get at it is to say things, you know, point out that people like Joe Biden obviously shelled out for their kids to go to Penn. You know, they obviously sh- sh- had a certain idea for what their kids deserved, and they're obvi- they're now saying that other people's kids shouldn't have those same kinds of opportunities, that only rich kids should be able to go to college. I mean, that is explicitly what's being said here. Unless you have $40,000 a year to pony up, you should not have to go to college. And let's not pretend that public colleges are that much better. If you don't have $15,000, $17,000 a year to pony up, which is half a minimum wage salary. Right, if if your parents are minimum wage workers, they're paying a quarter of their collective income for you to go to college, and it's going to be more than that, right? Because they're probably taking out loans and paying interest on that. That if you don't have that, you don't deserve to go to college, and you don't seem you don't deserve to get the same educational opportunities as Joe Biden's kids. To me, that is an unbearably craven perspective to have in the world, and it is a real, I think, slight on the left that they haven't been able, that we haven't been able to advance that kind of a framing. I don't know how you spin that. I don't know how, I mean, and I didn't say this to Bhatia in the course of the interview, but, you know, she obviously went to college. I obviously went to college. And the idea that we're sitting here with our graduate degrees debating whether or not working class people should have that same opportunity. And, you know, her choice to frame my argument that they should have those opportunities as somehow devaluing the dignity of jobs that don't require a college education. I mean, I don't know, man. I hope she joins this conversation and can defend, you know, her perspective because I, I certainly don't want to be in a position of talking about her behind her back, but that is some like, that is some next tier um, galaxy brain stuff from my perspective, but I'm curious to see if anybody else in this queue uh, feels differently. Next up, is this the same Gregory? Did you hop back in line Gregory or is this? New
2: I, I did. I, you know, I'm, I'm older than you guys who are here, most of you guys here, I think, because I, I just was listening to you talk about interest rates and I just want to tell you, when I bought my first house, I, my interest rate was seven point seven five percent, and that was an amazingly mm-hmm. great interest rate because rates have been over eleven twelve percent mm-hmm. Part of our problem I think these days is we've gotten out of this perspective of uh oh, we have to have super low interest rates and and everybody thinks it's got to be zero or two or three, and that's not how this country's worked for almost ever um until after Bill Clinton i mean under Bill Clinton, we had the best economy we've ever had that actually brought more people out of poverty than ever before. And we had moderate interest rates. And I think we've now seen that with interest rates being so low, you see the prices of things accelerate, such as college, housing, um, because we've, we've just made this massive amount of money so available that it's just caused the cost of everything to go up. So, I know you 're sitting there thinking that that 's a high rate for a student loan, but honestly that 's the rates that we should all be paying for our homes and and loans across the board um, if we really would want to stabilize our economy again and get everybody you know to have a fair shot and uh, when you're talking about the immigrants I, well, one other quick thing about immigrants in college um, you know the mm-hmm. one thing I, I think we should do is uh you know, and i and i 'm a libertarian so but I, I think if you're an immigrant and you go to the college here. And if you become a, a lawyer, not a lawyer, I'm sorry, we don't need any more of that. <laughs> uh, <but> after, <laughs> no, we actually
1: no, do need a lot more public interest lawyers. No, we do need a lot more public, public interest lawyers.
2: If you become a doctor, we're desperate for doctors. If you become a teacher, we need them. Or if you become an engineer, we need those desperately too. Uh, we should say not just get your green card. We would give you citizenship if you were to go into those fields, because we need them desperately. And I think it would be a great way to help our, with our immigration problem that we have, because we've kind of set this idea of, oh, anybody coming here is just going to be a drain on society. Well, here we can use it a perfect example of how they could contribute to our society. So um, just the two thoughts there, but yeah. interest rates should not be like they are. And everybody believes that they should have 2%. And it's just not right.
1: Well, thank you for that, Gregory. I I will say this. I think that because these are federally, two things on interest rates. First off, I'm not enough of a a savvy economist to really weigh in heavily here, but I will say that um, if, if if my interest rate for college were commensurate with someone's interest rate for buying a home, a home that they get to keep and actually accrues value over time, then I would have a weaker argument. But given that my interest rate in the college interest rates, I believe, are a little bit lower now than they were when I was in school, but it's two or three times what homeowners pay. Moreover, they get to deduct their interest up to a million dollars worth of value. Now it's down to $750,000, but it, as of a few years ago, it was up to a million dollars worth of value from their taxes, and I could deduct zero. Um, you can only deduct uh, your student loan interest rate if you make under $60,000 a year, and even if you do make under $60,000 a year, you can only deduct Uh, $2,000 total, I believe it was. So part of the issue is how differently student loan debtors are treated from other kinds of debtors in this country for whom there's a great deal of sympathy. You don't get the same kind of pushback when you're talking about mortgage relief. And again, I want to be clear, I'm not arguing against mortgage relief, but I'm pointing out that although there's a lot of this rhetoric about how this is a giveaway to the middle class, uh, upper classes and all of this kind of stuff, there are tons of giveaways to the middle class and homeowners. We have Joe Biden and Barack Obama talking about, "Oh gosh, I'm not going to raise taxes over anybody who makes $400,000 a year because that's a middle class family." But suddenly, Rashida Tlaib, who makes $175,000 a year and only recently, right before that she did all this public interest work as she was describing in her remarks, that didn't make anywhere near that sum of money, as evidenced by the fact that she still has this debt because again, Nobody would be carrying this debt at these interest rates if they had any other opportunity, and they had any other option, right? Um, That is described as somehow uh, an assault on the working classes or making the working classes paying for the rich. And it's interesting, it's notable how suddenly $400,000 goes from being uh, every man, when we're talking about assault cap or some other tax cut for the rich, that's a worker in the eyes of these corporatists. And suddenly to live with her government salary <laughs> is the exploiter in the 1% when it comes to student loan cancellation. And that inconsistency is a real problem for me. And your second point about immigrants, I, I appreciate the argument that you're making, but I got to say it makes me uncomfortable to have our immigration system and the deservedness of people coming into this country based on something that is so socially circumscribed as your ability to do an elite white collar job. And I suspect that if I Googled it and found what other kinds of labor deficits exist in this country, in fact, I don't even have to Google it because every news story for the past few months has been about how there's no one who's willing to work at McDonald's. There's nobody willing to work retail anymore. Right. So there's all kinds of labor shortages in this country and all kinds of need in this country that doesn't involve white collar jobs but the conversation is always about how to attract this like quote-unquote brain trust that has some eugenicist vibes for me and so we'd have to think that went through a little farther but i appreciate your input um let's take the next caller is this the same andy no there's another andy many andy's in the chat go ahead and meet yourself andy hi rihanna uh, can you hear me I can okay. hear you. What's going first, on? First of all, I'm a
6: huge fan. I'm very excited to be on this app finally. Uh, thank
1: you. This is very sweet.
6: <laughs> this of you. conversation has been uh really informative. And first of all, I uh, think the people <laughs> that are your that watch your show are super intel you know, super intelligent. The conversations I've heard here are amazing. Uh so what you mentioned earlier about how your uh guest, Batia, you know, the irony that she went to college and uh doesn't want free college for others. That really reminded me of uh, somebody in my family. So my aunt, uh, she's uh, an immigrant just like me. Uh, She came to the U.S. uh, with only a high school degree. So she had a lot of trouble, uh, you know, going up the corporate ladder. And, uh, you know, finally now she's in a place where I think she's like at a director's level. And uh, when we talked about politics earlier this year, uh, she mentioned how you know, she sounded a lot more libertarian than I thought she would be given the kind of struggle she's faced, Mm -hmm. both with being an immigrant and not having that privilege of having a bachelor's degree. So for example, she was against, you know, uh, payroll taxes on Medicare and having to pay for all these things that she doesn't get a chance to uh, enjoy right now. And of course, she was against free college Mm -hmm. as well. So I just find it uh, you know the, these kinds of ironies that we see in people we know. It's it's very surprising, <laughs> you know. I,
1: I, yeah, well Andy. On some level, that's a really good the the fact that um, she might have thought, well, I don't want to pay into a system that I can't take advantage of, is exactly why I would say to Batia when she says, um, you know, if this is about working class students, why not means test it? I mean, that's why. The more barriers there are to full access to all of these programs, and we've talked at length on the show and on. Um, You know, the Bernie podcast, uh, Hear the Mm -hmm. Burn and everywhere about how universal programs have this special um, staying power in part because so many, you know, everybody buys in firmly Mm -hmm. and equally. And I think that that's a real advantage. Also, um, if you're talking about, you know, look, it. We all know the the political blowback that has come from various cities uh, extending certain kinds of rights to non citizens, and you know that's a whole other kit and caboodle. But the more inclusive these policies are, the more buy in there is from everyone, and there's just no getting around that. And I don't, I don't, I don't, frankly, even blame people for having distrust in government and how they allot stuff, especially when the stuff never seems to get allotted in their direction.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's really amazing. No, please oh, go ahead. It's amazing how, okay, perfect. It's amazing how people's, you know, backgrounds and stuff can shape their politics so much. Cause I think if she were to go to college, uh, the thing is, was when she was applying a job, she saw how, unfortunately how smug some people with bachelor's degrees are in her field of industry. So she got an impression that, you know, people with bachelor's degrees are all of that and not everybody should get bachelor's mm-hmm. degrees cause they all turn into jerks. So, uh, you know, I don't know what else to say. I
0: mean, look, she's not. But here's the thing:
1: that's that is exactly how selection. by look, if yeah. if there was something that I didn't have access to, and everybody who had it seemed like an asshole, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's like um, what's the psychological? It's called um. Just world hypothesis, um, like system justification theory, right. which helps us make sense of the inequities in the world. So if I feel like I'm working hard, but nothing comes my way and I look at somebody else and things seem to be working out for them, I make it make sense in my brain by saying, oh, that, that, that was just unfair. They must not be working. You know, they, they must have some like special benefit. It must be nepotism. Something must be going on because the reality that the world just sometimes isn't fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much for us to process and too much for us to handle. So we spend so much time justifying the world as it is. And I had this professor in law school who I talk about all the time, and I'm really trying to get on the show, Professor John Hansen, who really um, integrated a lot of social psychology into our tort class. And I also took corporate law from him. And his point was that we have social change. We have social movements. When the gap between the world as it is and the world as we believe it should be because of our shared values becomes so big that we can no longer rationalize it away. Mm -hmm. And so when I see or hear stories like the one that you're telling me, is it about your, was it your mom? I'm sorry. I forgot. About your aunt, you know, know, I don't, I don't, I'm not frustrated with her. I'm frustrated that we haven't made the case that the conditions that she's observing as unfair, she shouldn't blame herself. She, sh- and, you know, she, should, she should hold a society account and be able to imagine that there, there's a better world in a better way. And that's, I think, our job as leftists. And what I would like the Democratic Party to be doing is to show that there's a better way for the world to be. Instead, what we get, and I'm sure we all <laughs> saw this clip today, you know what I'm about to play, um, the, 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 the newest clip to Unite the Left this boy right here—the incredulous stylings look at of done, Gen look at what we've done over the course of time. We've quadrupled the size of our
0: testing plan. We've cut the cost significantly over the past few months, and this effort to uh, uh, to push uh, to ensure insurance. Bree, we can't hear you if you're still playing that audio. <laughs> Instead, that's the kind of propaganda
1: we get constantly from the people who are supposed to be the good guys. A better world isn't possible. So if Saki doesn't believe it, how should I? Be, how can I be mad at your aunt for not believing it? <laughs>
6: Right, right. And I, I focused a lot on, uh, you know, explaining what you did about the benefits of those universal programs, like how we all pay, you know, for all the roads that we drive in and all these things and how, you know, if more things were universal like that, you know, that society would be a lot more just. So I've definitely mm-hmm. tried to focus on that rather than, you know, do any kind of personal attacks on her because it's just the way she was brought up and there's better ways, more productive yeah. ways to you know try to yeah. change that. Thank
1: you. Yeah, well, thank you for, you know, fighting that fight on the individual level and having those conversations and being so gracious in the course of doing so, because that's the most important thing. Thank you for your comment, Andy. All right. Uh, Johan is up next.
7: All right. Can you hear me?
1: I can. You have Brianna. the floor, Johan.
7: Brianna, sis, good good to be talking to you. <laughs> um, you're fantastic. Um, and that point about the dignity oh, of uh, blue-collar you know, workers has learned um, dignity. And if people can find meaning in menial, but important jobs, they can figure out something else. They just haven't watched enough Star Trek. That's obvious.
1: <laughs> 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 Amen. Love it. Love it, Trekkie in the, in the chat.
7: Hell yeah. And um, <laughs> okay. So speaking of uh, guest requests, um, you know, Peter Joseph, right? Um, zeitgeist movement, um, great analysis on all systems, really. Um, the New Human Rights Movement, he just wrote that book.
1: Mm, I don't know that I do. Let me,
7: oh, let me, give, it a quick, let me give it a kick
1: Look, you know, I already got uh, torn a new one by Andre for not reading.
7: <laughs> it's all good. I mean, we can't get to everything. And I, and I do have a question. I, I do. I, I just I have to throw that in there. because okay, I'm think... following
1: him. I'm following him right now
7: yeah, you two would have a really, really great conversation. So, um, But my question is, is it even scalable or realistic because of rapidly changing market forces to pretend that like college grads will even be able to find careers that can reasonably guarantee that their loans will be repaid? I mean, and do you feel like Ooh. there is a lot of mystery around gathering and considering that you know, relevant kind of information that can answer that question? Because I do.
1: Mm. <sighs> So I don't know what's being done in terms of research on that score. I'm sure somebody's on the case. But my intuitive sense right now is when, when I was 18, from my subjectively, you know, middle-class perspective, of a child of two col- uh, college graduates, it did not occur to me that I had the option to not go to college because it was drilled into my head that if I didn't go to college, I wasn't going to be able to get a job and participate in the economy. Like, that was the narrative, mm-hmm. right? like draconian, that was a narrative. (laughs) And today, you know, back then, even when I graduated college, I took a year off between college and law school. And I was so panicky that the inertia of life would keep me from grad school. I really thought that if I didn't get a grad degree, (laughs) I would be destitute out on the street. Nobody would hire me. I couldn't complete compete in the marketplace. I truly believe this to be the case. And it wasn't entirely Mm -hmm. irrational. Like it was very competitive. And, and we see that now we're in a world where you have to have, like, three master's degrees to be a teacher earning $50,000 a year. Like, this is the world we do live in. Uh-huh. So what I think is inevitable that we're going to have this backlash, you know what happened to me today? Today, I came up from the gym. I, I went to get a package from the front desk at my building. And the, the girl behind the counter uh-huh. goes, hey, I think you're my cousin. And I'm like, no, I don't have any cousins your age. And she pulls out her mask. And if, if, if it wasn't my GD cousin, <laughs> like not my cousin cousin, but she, she, her mom and my mom were like college roommates and I call her mom my aunt. So I was like, girl, what are you doing here? And, and you know, she's wonderful. And we're going to get lunch next week and like catch up properly. But I was like, this, this is what it is. She's a college grad, middle-class girl. And I don't know what's going I on. I don't mean to say this, you know, in, in a dispiriting way or anything. <laughs> but, like, we're all, like, so many people are working the kind of jobs that we didn't used to think we needed a college degree for. Right? And mm-hmm. I'm not trying to put how, poor girl, I'm all the business out on the front street. But you get my point, right? Like, through nobody's personal failure, mm-hmm. through no, you know, lack of grit or hard work or willingness to take out loans... There just isn't the si- same kind of guarantee from going to college that there used to be. So, if I had a child right now and they were, if they and they said to me, "Not only do I want to take a gap year, maybe I don't want to go," I'd be like, "Cool, cool." <laughs> I mean, look, I I can't make a credible argument for why they right. should go, or at least why they shouldn't should go if they're not going to go to such an elite tier institution that there are certain kinds of protections, right? But even that isn't everything. I mean, I just had lunch also with a friend today from law school who just got let go of her firm because the legal market isn't exactly what it is. And again, play the smallest violin in the world for you know a terminated Harvard law school graduate, she'll land on her feet. It'll be fine. But you know, it's just the world that my stepfather, who's about to retire with a pension and working at the same company for like thirty years, was in. It's just not the world that we're in anymore. And I think we're we have to see a devaluation of the value of college degrees, but it's not going to be for everyone. It's going to be a lack of value for the college degrees except for those elite degrees, which are still going to hold their staying power. In fact, their staying power is going to grow because it's going to be more, even more important to get into Georgetown or NYU or Yale. Because otherwise, oh. those other degrees aren't, are, are already basically not worth the money that they're printed on. And that's what we, we know this because we had Becky Tanner from Full House going to federal <laughs> uh-huh. prison Because it was so important for her to get her child, even though she's a millionaire, to get her child into George. I think it was George Washington University. Mm
0: -hmm. Now
1: You can't tell me that Becky Tanner's child couldn't have paid her way and gotten into a perfectly decent public institution. But no, Becky Tanner's daughter, who's going to go on to a career of Instagram stardom, (laughs) is is, needed, needed, needed to go to George Washington, which is a very expensive college. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's even happening in the
7: trades, Brie. It's like, I was a massage therapist for 10 years and like, you know, the industry as it is now, like I I feel so sorry for these people graduating from these technical colleges or whatever, you know, they get their massage diplomas and Mm -hmm. things from because they come out of it and they have to pay for continuing education and license fees and just everything you can think of. Mm -hmm. And Massage Envy wants to employ them and pay them $15 an hour and they can only work upwards of mm. 30 something. The average massage therapist only works like, I don't know, 28 to 35 hours a week because, you know,
1: because of scheduling or because it's just not the market for it or what's the deal? Oh, because there? you'll tear up
7: your body. It's uh, it's very difficult. Mm. To, you know, you, you can't even work, you know, 70 hours a week and power through it and, and you can't even do that sort of a thing. So mm. man,
1: Oof. Yeah, that's a really important perspective. And I'll, I'll give this to Batia. I think that we do need to do more to highlight that, you know, part of when we say free public college is also free public college and trade school. I, I will give her that, that all of the Bernie style plans that were on the table also fo- focused on the trades. And so she kept bringing up the trades. And I'm like, yeah, the trades, like uh, 100% for sure. Um, and that we do need to live in a country where there isn't some of the cultural stigma against the trades. I think that that she's completely right there. And that because the people who are driving the conversation are people like me who have my own blinders on, there is an over-focus on elite educations in grad school. Like That is a a fair concern and that I would love to have a more substantial conversation with you or anybody that you would recommend on the podcast about the discrete concerns that are facing other kinds of workers. Um, So I appreciate you adding that perspective here. Call me out. Yeah, no.
7: But, <laughs> Call me but, Diana, in. <laughs> no, you.
1: But, you know,
7: that what kind of balancing, um, you know, certain kinds of education can can give somebody and what kind of perspective on the world that can give somebody. And I believe there was a recent episode of Bad Faith where you were talking about how just education in general um, kind of just pushes people left. Um, So, I mean, Mm -hmm. there there is so much value for a human being to be educated. And I I don't think that you're off base at all about that. Um, I think we can do both. We can do trades and we can educate people in really interesting and innovative ways that don't have to saddle people with ridiculous debt for the rest of their life.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean... Well, the way Sparky talks, and I, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get him on here once the platform opens up to Androids. So sorry about that, guys. Um, but I love the way that he and like Astro Taylor talk about the history of free um, primary school in this country. And the way that ver- these very same arguments were brought up when the conversation started about whether we should guarantee free K through 12 education. And that seems like such a no-brainer now. And I think it's a useful exercise to reflect on that moment in history because there's so much of the antagonism toward left ideas that's just limited imagination, the Star Trek thing again. And being able to say, like, literally <laughs> we went through this already. There are people who are as incredulous about free fifth grade as you are about free college and obviously the economy Demands both from fifth grade and college at this point, (laughs) you know, I I think that it's it's such a useful exercise um, to walk people through. So if you guys haven't already listened, we did do an episode with uh, Sparky Abraham and Bridget Reed talking about this very issue probably six months ago or so. I believe it was a free episode, but if it's not, again, you can find substantial chunks of it at uh, Bad Faith YouTube. Thank you so much, Johan. You're a real delight.
7: Hey, thank you. I'll see you next time.
1: See you next time. All right. Next up we have E. How you doing, E? Hey Bree.
3: Thanks for uh this uh opportunity. Appreciate, love your podcast, love the ideas that you, thank you. you share. Um I had a quick question about um if there's any role that the states can have in either canceling debt or um at least pausing any kind of interest rates or even decreasing and making it free, um, for at least the public colleges. Um, and I'm asking this because I was recently looking Mm. at the, just for fun, I don't know why, but I was (laughs) looking at the, uh, financial, um, budget for the state of Virginia. Um, and I, and I was looking for something else and I noticed like, Oh yeah, I totally forgot that. Like university of Virginia, Virginia tech, George Mason, they're all line items in the budget. And I'm like, of course, yeah, like they, it's about those are public institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to uh, throw that question out um, as we wait for hopefully in the future, a uh, federally um, cancellation of debt, if there's something that states can do in the meantime. Um, <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Thanks, e. I mean, that's a really good, sparky question. Um, my belief, though, is that because um, the idea behind cancellation is that it's, this is like federal debt that Joe Biden has the authority to write off, that the states don't have much of a say there. With respect to free public colleges, I, I think you're right. The states do have a lot of control there. And I, I don't have, I'm not especially knowledgeable on that score, except that I'm reflecting on um, stuff I've read about how much more free the California system used to be and how much prior there was in the state and the extremely high-quality public education system they had there and how it became dramatically, remarkably less free around the time integration came into effect and the role that integrated uh, public education had in the withdrawal of funding from these institutions. And this is another one of those drain pool politics moments that Heather McGee talks about where uh, your desire to... Um, withdraw benefits from a certain population that's perceived as undeserving ends up hurting everybody. Um, and I wish we could frame it that way instead of having these endless fights about, um, you know, affirmative action or whether or not that um, young redheaded girl was qualified to get into the University of Texas or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to make it about her, but boy oh boy, was she not the good test case for that that particular one?
5: Yeah. Um, now What? Mm-hmm,
1: go ahead. E. No, I was going to say, no, I appreciate that. I just wanted to throw it out there
3: in case anyone else has any ideas about that. But um, yeah, like uh, the reason why I'm asking that is also um, is, is an unrelated topic, but related in terms of like my journey, I'm understanding how states can take action um, in terms mm-hmm. of like reparations. I, there's a story out in California, I think of a farm or something like that, that was uh, given back to uh, at least the descendants of a black American family. And um, I've been doing some investigative mm-hmm. research here on this house that's in Arlington. And um, that was built by a former enslaved person and, uh, but doesn't seem like their descendants mm. um, live in it. In fact, it was sold for like over a million dollars earlier this year. And I was wondering mm. what, like, you know, that same kind of um, kind of a uh, framework, like how did they, how were they able to give back something to a family um and how we could kind of copy that into other um, realms, including like student debt cancellation. But just wanted to throw that question out there. Your thoughts?
1: Oh, yeah. interesting. I don't. So what? What would be the what would be the student debt angle? Like I know, for example, a few years ago, Harvard Law students there was a whole thing about the the shield, the Harvard the wheat on the shield that had to do with a specific family that was a slave owning family and whether or not the donations should go to um, student debt or like financial aid for black students in particular. And those arguments are being made at the time. But what is the argument you think would be made to get some kind of tort style reparations from these um, educational institutions?
3: Yeah, if we, so, um, and of course, I'm just, I'm not like a a trained person in this, but what I was thinking was, um, so right now I'm just looking at this house that the Senate doesn't currently live there it's like a person that works for Amazon web services and um and what got me mad was like every day he walks out and there's a plaque by the uh, city of Arlington that says this was built by a foreign enslaved person, and I'm like, "dang, mm-hmm. that sucks like I wish that I wish mm-hmm. his family would have it and so um what I'm doing right now is just trying to figure out like the records and and kind of follow the money kind of thing. From like I think in Arlington County they have records back to 1876 of that house. So then to put it back into, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't even thinking about like about what you just said, but like if I were to do that, it would just take like research of understanding like okay who are all the people um, who if there's any records who built that school or attended this school and and, um, and their descendants maybe we could find find information about that to either cancel their debt or to you know give scholarship for free or something
1: like that um yeah that is interesting i mean obviously that's not a um like a wholesale solution but i'm very interested in those kinds of reparations programs that are kind of based in tort law because i do think the biggest obstacle kind of rhetorically is the you know my family immigrated here in 1920 or whatever and Mm -hmm. so i don't owe you anything and we can sit here and make arguments about oh you benefited from Uh, systemic racism (laughs) but like at the end of the day like nobody cares you know like i I would rather chase and be like okay i'm not even trying to take your money like that is not even the point same with the student debt stuff like no one's asking working class people to pay a dime it's just the government's crossing it off their balance sheet um yeah instead to say there are all these institutions that we don't have to abstract like you, aren't, you don't want a spiritual debt. You want a literal debt. Like you, company, have existed for 300 years and were profiting up until recently, just like there are all these ho- Holocaust cases that are rightly giving all of these payouts to survivors or their descendants. You know, yeah. suing the railroad companies that were, you know, carting people off to Auschwitz and, and what have you. There's plenty of institutions that are around today. I know the, um, the, Chase, the Chase logo, that kind of octagon circular thing,
3: yeah.
1: Um, that looms large above this, the central square in, in downtown Delaware, uh, <laughs> um, about, <laughs> at home state of the senator from NBNA. Uh, it's it was designed to look like a uh, the inside of an old timey lead uh, like pipe because it was a, initially a company, I believe, that like insured or, you know, um, financed the building of like the New York City sub like plumbing system or something like that. That's how old these places are. And so they're not exactly clean hands. And if we had any halfway decent tort system in the 60s or the 1860s, then those people would have been held accountable. (laughs) But, you know, there's an argument that there's more corporate longevity there than you would have for an individual and that damage is attached. And so I would really like to see a kind of um, an approach that was focused less on kind of like white guilt and just uh, on the actual bad actors that are still persisting. I pitched it to Bernie 2020, but nobody was interested.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, We're interested. I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you, E. No
1: problem. Have a good day. Uh, You too. I would also like to point out that uh, my mother also tracked down a plantation that might be our family plantation. I found it in my inbox just now. It's the Tanglewood Plantation in South Carolina. Uh, Also known as the Ellison Durant Smith House. My great-grandmother's name um, was Verley Durant. And my mom is pretty confident. She got really into that ancestry. dot com stuff. That this was like the place. Wow. <laughs> which we had no very way. mixed feelings about. Um, it seems to be owned by a mixed race couple, which I guess is a, a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> it's some kind of progress now. <laughs> they have really cute pictures of their little, like you know, brown kids running around the lawn. Um, but yeah, I remember it was, it was up for sale some years ago, I guess, before this family bought it. And you know, they host weddings there. <laughs> um, something to think about. We live in a crazy, crazy country. Thank you for that. Yeah, e Appreciate it. All right, is this another Andy? Is it the same Andy? I feel like I'm drowning in Andys. What's going on, Andy?
4: Uh, this is uh this is the first Andy that um, called in again. Um the OG because, Andy. Yeah, I think uh, I was brought back cuz uh, of something that Gregory mentioned, but um but mm. first I just wanted to something that, that I was thinking about. I think it's uh, I don't know if it's like exclusive to American culture, but I feel like there's uh, I think
0: mm-hmm.
4: one of the biggest undercurrents that's like such an issue is that we have all like a a very much a like a fuck you I got mine kind of mentality and whether it's like student debt Relief mm-hmm. or even in immigration uh like an- anecd- anecdote from my mother who you know she 's undocumented as a, as am i and now not not all undocumented mm-hmm. immigrants like their situations aren 't all the same in the case of my mother she's um she had an overstate visa, so like she entered the country legally but you know, she overstayed, and that's what got, got her her, um, her current status. And we have these conversations, my mother and I, uh, like, especially like with, like, the caravans and the Central American um, immigrant crisis at the border. And, you know, my mom, you know, with her experience, you would think that she would be sympathetic to the plight, and she very much isn't. And, you know, it seems like, you know, in her case, you, like i don't know if it's so much that because she's already here she's adopted a new point of view uh or whatever um and i i think and my mom and i we fight we fight about this all the time but um something that gregory touched on also uh with like um with how we should you know how he thinks immigration policy should like uh reward those who only want to pursue like um elite uh, professions, I think, um, in the case of like DACA, for example, um, uh, and this is just also anecdotal, uh, there's a subreddit mm-hmm. on DACA which is just like r slash DACA, and you know, I think you would think that it's kind of like a left leaning leftist space, but it very much isn't, and I think it's also kind of like a consequence of like what the program selects for because part of the re- requirements is like you have to be either currently employed or more importantly, uh currently you know in school or pursuing school and I think it also like it selects for a specific kind of individual who starts to you know
0: mm-hmm. who
4: aspires to you know for that upward mobility and what you see in the suburban a lot is a lot of people who are you know either in like medical school or law school um not in my case I just uh, I took a year off but um a gap year but I'm you know going mm-hmm. to pursue my bachelor's now about a gap year what if you yeah, fall you know, off the path but you know <laughs> like in my kidding. case and I took the gap year because of a out of a financial situation and you know it's like yeah that's real uh, you know, oh I'm not in the state that where that awards in-state tuition to uh DACA recipients unfortunately so I had to think about that too but um yeah it's just I think it's, mm. I think part of the reason why that, um, you know, DACA recipients perhaps aren't, um, I, I think I'll, I'm losing my train of thought here, but.
1: No, no, no. You're saying that because the, the program selects for a somewhat more kind of upwardly mobile cohort because it, requi- it requires you to be college educated or be in college that the people are more likely to have a, you know, pull up the ladder behind you mentality um, that is hostile to right. other kinds of immigrants or people who are in a different kind of path. Yeah, Yes. yes yeah. Exactly. that's a very interesting perspective that I hadn't considered before, but it makes perfect sense to me. And again, I mean, I don't want to make everything like uh, the Heather McGee hour, but I'm sorry. Like, it just makes so much sense. So much of this is a divide and conquer game. So much of this isn't I don't think, you know, the narrative has been, uh, you know, white people are racist and evil. <laughs> like, and that's why they oppose all these programs. And that, that is it's too simplistic because anybody can be provoked to being kind of um, unsympathetic. And draconian when dealing with a group other than themselves is they feel like they need to preserve their own status. And, of course, if you have more status in the country, you're going to have those sentiments more. And that might be concentrated among people who are white or male or more affluent or all three categories at once. But the idea like that's it's always I've always bristled at this idea that, like, black, you know, people can't be prejudiced or bigoted if they are other from other groups or other places or have bad politics and support trump or whatever it is because everybody has something they're willing to lose if you have even a fragment of a thing that you think you can lose you can turn around and be very hostile and very evil and a real jerk in a second and so it's not about people being bad people and all these conversations about individuals and whether they're good or bad or their moral merit are completely beyond, beyond the point what you want to do strategically is put people in the best situation to be kind Which is to remove whatever threat real or perceived there is from them and make them feel like they have some surety and guarantees in their life. And that means a social safety net. (laughs) You know, that means free programs, free housing, free education, free health care so that people at least don't think they're going to die and be homeless if they get a high medical bill. You know, that like the threat is where you have people who making good salaries. You know, I was just talking to my mom about this, about how I feel. I feel a certain amount of guilt about making a good salary, but feeling that impulse to hoard because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if some platform gets shut down. I don't know if suddenly everyone's going to wake up and not care about my political opinion anymore. I don't I don't want to have to go back to the law. I didn't maintain my license and, you know, I don't have a pension. I don't know what's going to happen to me 20 years from now. And that that provokes you to want to hoard. You know, and that obviously weighs on me ethically because of my politics. And I wish we didn't live in a country where we felt like we had to save up for some cataclysmic health crisis down the line, potentially, because our health insurance system is so bad, you know. Sorry, uh and I means mean to go on a rant, um, but thank you for that perspective. Uh, let's take Amir. I'm going to do, I have a recording to do at 845, and I think I have to log on a little earlier than that. So I'm going to take just the next few questions. So. It looks like there's two more left. I'm going to take Amir and A, and then I think we should call it a night. Before I do take Amir, I want to say to you guys, I really appreciate it when you make clips from the episode. You know how you can do the little clip thing and you can clip and share on social media? I have so much posting to do in my life already (laughs) that I really appreciate it when you make the clips because then I can just push it to social without having to go back and listen through the episode and and crib out parts that were useful. So if you asked a question and you want to advertise that you spoke on the pod or if there was a a particular part that you found to be most engrossing, go ahead and use the feature in this to clip it and I will share your clip to social. There's like a 90% likelihood I will. I mean, unless you just, you know, edit me sounding insane for some reason. Um, But I would appreciate it if you guys uh, want to do that. You're up. Amir.
8: Uh, Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say, um, again, like everybody else, uh, when they get to say something to you is that you're wonderful. And I don't know if anybody can get a clip of you sounding horrible because, I don't know, after the, you know, <laughs> listening to you in the podcast and the Bernie and while canvassing for six weeks in Iowa after the whole thing, I really, I mean, I'm from the streets. Like I mm. couldn't speak any, I couldn't say anything as nice as you are, as you did, but it's so poisonous. And I mean, you were kind of my, I live vicariously through your, you know, demolishing people, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's on the TV and I, it felt a little bit kind of a little small victory in, in a way, you know. Uh, because it was so devastating, this whole period. So, I don't know. I just wanted to say thank you for that. And, yeah. um, you know, somebody asked me before about college. I mean, I'm a, I am ai went to college because, you know, I'm Jewish. So, I had the same household that you have that, you know, I basically went because I got tired of coming around to family dinners and hearing that, so why don't you go to college anymore. What's going on? <laughs> I got to, are you going to be the one that's going to go to college? Are you, gonna, you know, and the truth is, I, I well... I don't use it. Like, I'm not working in the field. You know, like, I studied something by mistake because I went to bi- study business because I wanted to just graduate, which was a mistake. And nobody stopped me and mm-hmm. told me, hey.
1: Right. You were a kid. How could you possibly have even well, a kind of life experience to know what kind of. Like, no one knows. I grew up
8: in Israel. So I wasn't a kid, but I agree with you. Like, normally it's, it's true. I was. Well, how uh, old
1: were you when you went to college? I was
8: 22 when I started.
1: Okay, I don't think there's a substantive difference between an 18 year old and a 22 year old in terms of but, having the life experience well, to make agree. a permanent decision. And you know, an eighty thousand dollar, a hundred fifty thousand dollar decision that is irreversible. You know what I mean?
8: Well, so that's the point I wanted to make. Like, you know, first of all, I agree with you, and I think science agrees that it's 25 that you, you know, mature finally. <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. you know, it's the same with the uh, that case with a kid in Michigan. Like, I don't know, but charging somebody as an adult. Mm-hmm. I know I'm off topic, but it's part of the same issue that some ages you're not responsible enough or you shouldn't mm-hmm. be and because you're bound to make a mistake it's almost like part of the con you know like you know the next thing it's like they swindled all the old people with the homes you know it's it, it's a, it seems on the same vein but mm-hmm. I, I went to school and started i started with english as a second language and um I don't know, it was 2002, I want s- maybe, yeah, when I started actual classes. Yeah, I had a landscape business at the same time, so I was mm-hmm. about five years to graduate just from the bachelor initially. and I didn't have any debt. You know, I worked. I worked 70 hours a week for seven months out of the year, but, uh, you know, uh, and then five months, it's kind of the winter when you're landscaping in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work to be a landscaper. Uh, but it gave me enough time to catch up on my classes or start the semester well or whatever mm-hmm. but the point is i don 't think you can afford it today, nobody can do it even with a job you know like uh, it 's not like I, I was uniquely make, i wasn 't making a lot of money in the mm-hmm. at, you know the equivalent of ten to twelve bucks an hour um, but tuition was affordable mm-hmm. like first of all, tuition was affordable, and I as a foreign student you know like I, I was i came from israel i wasn't i didn 't even have my green card yet. Like, because it was the Midwest, nobody looked for my passport, maybe. It's possible. Nonetheless, I was getting grants. I had $15,000 a year and, like, not Pell Grants. Pell Grants was the one for the taxes, the other one, whatever. And then just towards the end, because the war of Iraq was kind of getting really brewing and Afghanistan together, um, you know, that's when suddenly they they dried up. And suddenly they changed, like, the last semester Mm -hmm. I had to take loans. And I think... You know, I think that's part of it. Like, it's not that long ago. That's what's so annoying about it. That, you know, you don't have to go back to the '60s and, yeah. you know, and so, yeah. I don't know. I just,
1: uh, yeah. I, I think that's a good point because I think there, because the changes happen so quickly, there are a lot of people, including Gen Xers, who will sometimes not be so sympathetic.
8: yeah, well, I'm, gen-, gen-, I'm a one, gen Xer.
1: Yeah, one, that one generation difference can make a, a huge difference in your experience going through this process.
8: Right. And I agree. But, I, you know, like the fact that somebody looks, if you are like looking at the pocket of somebody else that just because whatever, it's just annoying. Like, you know, like you're going to get something where somewhere that you will need, you know, need society's help or, you know, or wanted or, you know, if we lived in a place that is better for everybody, then you'll benefit from somehow. Like, you know, eyeing somebody's pocket or whatever. I don't know the right term or phrase in English, but you know, like kind of being stingy yeah. on the expense of somebody else, but it's not from your own pocket you know just yeah
1: uh, count somebody else's money i think is what we say know,
8: right it's, yeah it's pettiness and i think it comes from a different it comes from the competition we're left to fight you know like it's funny that i grew up and mm-hmm. spend a lot of time in a kibbutz and when you're a kid you try to push away all the stuff that you're you know just because you are pushed by parents or whatever like it's all automatically bad and you mature a little bit mm-hmm. and you say oh well and that was that's a better life you know
1: and um but- yeah. Well, I've said it on the show, and I think we should we should have a, someone come in and really talk about what it would look like, because I know people might feel a little some kind of way about it. But I love the idea of some kind of communal experience, You know, especially if college is going the way of the dinosaur. That's not military service, but some kind of communal public service that people do to make, one, you're not so young when you do go to college and you have more perspective on what you want to do and what you enjoy in your life. Well, this- and also so we can yeah, learn next- about each other and be next to each other and work alongside each other and value different kinds of labor to Bhatia's point because you've actually done it yourself mm-hmm.
8: yes and the kibbutz is not organized about the, around the military and i think it's a common you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. misconception it's that's everybody in israel goes to military
1: no i just meant because i usually talk about like oh. i use conscription as a as a yeah. <laughs> the analogy and people go what are you uh-oh, asking for Brianna?
8: <laughs> no but i mean first of all i think there's a movement to make that happen like um, partly because the of cost of housing and because people want to eat mm-hmm. better and they realize, you know, we're you know we get all this uh, children on on the spectrum because of like glyphosate in everything you eat, and uh, you should you should look at Doctor Zach Bush, and you know I think it's a uh, yeah look look him up, Dr. and Zach I'm sure he will, will come on your show. It's just that uh, it's an uh, important information, and it's really in the vein of like a real change from like within, and he's kind of in the high tech where usually the Silicon Valley are pretend to be our friends. It's not really. You know, they're kind of like Elizabeth Warren friends, you know? So, mm-hmm. And so, like, but he's mm-hmm. kind of, like, really in like, he really <laughs> embodied.
0: <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> like, Thank you. You
8: know, like, yeah, uh, <laughs> with friends like that, we don't you need know? enemy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sorry, I got this. They sent me this soundboard. I have to use it, guys. I'm sorry. Like
8: It's too much Well, fun. yeah, like, no, that's fine. That's a little bit like uh, Kramer from CNBC, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't respond to your other point, Amir, because I, I will say that you said you don't have to go back to the 60s, and you're right, but I, I had this experience where I had a boss. I won't say who it is because you're not supposed to talk about what happens. Um, But I had a boss who was a conservative, um, and I liked him a lot. You know, we got along well, but we scrapped it up a lot, uh, our political beliefs. And he was very anti um, any kind of student debt. We weren't even talking about cancellation back then. This was like 2011, 12. But any kind of student debt relief or any sympathy for people with student loans. And this was in a legal context. And he, you know, was a lawyer. And he Mm -hmm. said, well, I worked a summer and paid for my semester of law school. I could work for a summer and pay. I said, he said, I worked at a gas station and paid for a year of law school. I said, "Sir, <laughs> where do you su- suggest I work for a summer that can pay sixty thousand dollars? What what two month job is going to pay me sixty thousand dollars? Where, please, pray tell, can I earn thirty thousand dollars a month so I can go back to school and pay off my tuition, like more than that because taxes?" And he, like, he just would not accept the argument that we, like, no one is talking about the fact that college costs more today, exorbitantly more. I have a stat here. Inflation has been a factor in rising law school prices. Sorry, I was Googling law school before we came on, but obviously it's the case, generally speaking. Um, But law school tuition increases exceeded the inflation rate between 1985 and 2019. In 1985, the year of my birth, the average private school tuition was $7,526, Nineteen eighty-five dollars which would have cost a student $17,871, in 2019. Instead, the average law school tuition today in 2019 is $49,000. So from $17,000 to $49,000.
8: Wow. I think the course of- $55 a credit, hours, a credit hour in the beginning. And it was about 100 when I was done. And, you know, like it took me five years to, to do my bachelor's degree, but it was 100 credit, I want to say like that that makes sense yeah that's 1200 yeah it was cheap i mean i went to school in the university of nebraska you know but um you know it's mm-hmm. still the you know it's a, it's a regular state university it's a, the, actually the business school is relatively mm-hmm. okay you know considered uh, you know like not it's not a, it's a i don't know mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i i really am glad you took my call and uh, uh you know I, well i'll ask you another time you have to go so thank you Yes.
1: Well, thank you for your thank contribution. You. I hope to see you back okay. around. And here thanks again. for the We're approval great.
8: to make clips. If you know if that this helps, it's also nice to know. So,
1: please, like that's part of the functionality of this app that really attracted to me, me to the the platform is that they make it easy for you to share the specific part of the podcast you want people to hear on social instead of being like, "Here's this ninety minute thing. Listen to it. The good part's somewhere in the middle." <laughs> you know. Yeah.
8: You see, well, I I bought a new phone and I swear I don't have any of the social media on it, but uh, I I will do that just because. (laughs) Well, if you make
1: the clip in this app, it it in the app and then I can push it from this app to all all of my social.
8: I, I send it to you on this app.
1: Yeah, like it, it, you'll see it in when this when this publishes.
8: Okay, I'll um, see. I'll figure it out I mean, I, yeah, know, I'm there's a, like a little I'll, scissor I'll,
1: icon. Yeah,
8: <laughs> I'll hilarious. do the shears thing. I'll
0: prune one. <laughs> yes, okay.
1: please prune a clip for me, Amir. <laughs> Thank Thanks. you. You're a delight. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> All right, A, you are our final caller for the evening.
5: Oh, that's nice. uh It's me. I'm back. I'm the guy from India. By the way, A from India. Yes. By the way, I completely uh, support your hoarding, because you never know what might happen. For instance, anyone who subscribed to your Patreon from India, such as myself, uh, our payments have been blocked uh-huh. off. I don't know if you know about this. Yeah, basically, like really? a new, my God, like a new harebrained scheme uh, by the central bank, which has blocked all recurring payments because they think that, you know, recurring payments are evil or whatever. So base and so sites like Patreon, which don't uh, allow for direct transactions and only subscription models, there's no way to sort of renew our subscription. So we've just been blocked off.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I had no idea. That's interesting and and good to know i mean people have been telling me i need to start a Substack for other reasons and i've been i'm actually working on a piece that i hope is my first will be my first Substack post i've missed writing i sometimes feel myself getting sucked back into twitter and i have to remind myself brianna Uh don't waste your time here just write a substantive response to the batia tweet or the Uh been jealous debate or whatever it is that's got me rankled um so hopefully there's other kinds of Oh, well, I don't know if it's going to to all platforms, but no worries. If, are you able to access premium content? Nope. That sucks, man. I want you to be able to yeah. see stuff. All right, Absolutely. Me I mean, uh,
5: like I, I've been, you know, blocked out of all like this great leftist content I subscribe to. But anyway, I will get to what I was going to say, which is like as, uh you know, sure. as someone who's also I mean, I'm a I'm a designer and visual communicator. So I'm very sort of like your emphasis on rhetoric and mm-hmm. how things are communicated resonates with me a lot. So I was wondering when it comes to like debt cancellation, if there's, you know, the. A religious argument that can be sort of put out there because there is the biblical sort of precedent of jubilees etc mm. and you know the right tends to co-opt all you know mm-hmm. they tend to kind of corner the market on religion i was wondering if you think something like that could work
0: i think
1: it's possible i think folks have to be very careful because I don't know, sometimes the, the liberals don't stick the land in so great. <laughs> and there's the chance that it could come off as really cynical. It's like, oh now you want to start talking about religion. Y'all got y'all haven't cared about religion forever, which of course isn't true, but I could see I could hmm. see the argument that's like, oh, you're just trying to weaponize religion to get this elite boon, you know, this elite cancellation when you didn't care about religious rights when we're talking about abortion or whatever other issue. Um I do think, though, I would feel more confident about it in combination with other kinds of debt cancellation. And I do think it's true mm. that we should try to avoid having a conversation about student debt uh, alone without talking about medical debt cancellation and other kinds of debt jubilees. Because um, we are vulnerable to the argument that it is, it is elite and we can make the argument that it's not. But I think it cuts through the um, the gray noise, the white noise better to just make people have to argue against student debt cancellation and medical debt cancellation, especially since medical debt cancellation is so small. Like it's such a small (laughs) amount of money that would do so much for people. You know, the, the salt tax is what $275 billion cost before the pandemic. And I'm sure it's bigger now, but before the pandemic to cancel all medical debt, all outstanding medical debt in the United States of America, was only going to cost $81 billion. You know, and like the Democrats just won't do it. Like, just do it. It's a pandemic. (laughs) Can you imagine? It's like free press. Just do it. And talking about like those those programs in tandem, you know, makes it a lot easier to withstand the arguments, and makes it lot a lot harder to for them to drive us apart and to pretend that we aren't concerned with working class concerns. In addition to again highlighting the trade school aspect of this as well.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah,
5: I mean, although, like, I mean, in the case of, let's say, the Green New Deal, you know, it came under a lot of scrutiny, because people felt like, why are you clubbing it? Like, why are you clubbing climate with, uh, you know, race and immigration and so on and so forth. So it's like, I mean, bad actors are going to find a way to criticize things regardless. Um, I mean, just to continue. So, sort of, sure. in general, I think, and mm-hmm. just to continue to head from my previous question, I mean, just this, like, to sort of respond to an economic um, challenge in purely sort of economic terms, and you know, in the tradition of how any kind of you know human rights-centered uh, change that is asked for is immediately like challenged with you know, okay, how you know how do you balance the books? As though you know we're supposed to come ready with you know the plus and mm-hmm. minus of it all. I mean, so hence, like I'm just casting around for is there a way to kind of buck the framework of pure mathematics when speaking of something like education, which ideally should transcend that kind of calculus
1: oh so there, there are a lot of arguments that we made during the campaign so for one what one was we talk about stimuluses all the time in terms of cutting taxes for the rich and how that's going to stimulate the economy the uh, mm-hmm. economists have crunched the numbers and they say that canceling student debt is equivalent to like giving everybody a three thousand dollar or like you know a three thousand dollar tax cut in terms of how much money would then go into the economy, I read a stat earlier in this conversation mm-hmm. about how uh, there's a correlation between a lack of home ownership and student debt relief. And But was it every 1,000? An increase in $1,000 of student debt causes a 1% to 2% point drop in home ownership rate. So, I mean, the average student debtor has what, yeah. $30,000 of student debt? So you can see the dramatic lack of um, investment in homes. As a consequence of student debt, I think about how much money I've been able to spend. and I I only could start a business, right? I was only able to start a business and start Mm. this podcast because my student debt was on hiatus these past two years. You know, I have Mm. been lucky enough to earn a good salary my entire working life as an attorney, but have only ever lived in studio apartments, (laughs) you know, as a consequence of, you know, homeownership just wasn't even on the table. So I can attest to the fact that this is not money that you know we are not in a class of people who would sit on the money because we can't yeah right like this would immediately be a stimulus to the economy um there are again this is not a, something that's a line budget item this is a cancellation it's federal debt that is basically just gets written off so it's not as though it adds to the deficit or anything like that and then there are a million arguments economically yeah. for why this is fruitful I- for everyone
5: yeah. By the way, did we? Was there any sort of moral consensus arrived at about uh, Hassan Piker's house and whether we were allowed to have money on the left?
1: Yeah, that was interesting. I. I mean, I appreciated what um, both guests, but both Richard Wolf and Richard, uh, Chris Hedges said. Although I, I wanted them to engage a little bit more mm. in that philosophical issue because it is one that I sincerely struggle with. I, mm. My goal was not to kind of pile on Hassan, but to ask the question because, to a, yeah. a much much lesser degree, <laughs> you know, I think I'm I'm struggling with it <laughs> as well. Um,
5: yeah, gotta get that Twitch money somehow. <laughs> you
1: know, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, if I. You know, certain religious traditions say, you know, you should pay this amount of alms of your salary. But absent having, Mm -hmm. you know, belonging to one of those religious traditions and given the scarcity mindset that I was talking about before, you know, I I don't know what the ethical lines are for me. Like how many GoFundMes that come across my Twitter page do I respond to on a weekly basis? You know, (laughs) is that what I should be doing? Should I set up a foundation? Like, I, I really admire that Katie Halper and Matt Taibbi started taking ads on useful idiots so that they can give $10,000 a month to a press freedom organization. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't, I don't know what the answer is and I don't have a pastor or a, a mom and I, I don't know who to ask. So I asked Chris Hedges, and <laughs> Richard Wolf, but I'm not sure I got a <laughs> satisfactory answer, but um, you know, we can keep having that conversation. And if you guys have thoughts, maybe, maybe we'll have a call an episode about that titled how much money is Brianna allowed to have? that
5: sounds good thank you so much We really appreciate it
1: thank you i appreciate you i appreciate all of you a reminder that you should make clips that you can subscribe to bad faith if you don't already at patreon.com slash bad faith podcast you get four additional episodes a month that we will be here on colin the day after every episode airs we didn't talk much about our monday episode but if you want to bring it up for our On Friday, when I tune back in here, I'm more than happy to talk about anything at any time. Um, If you want to help support us and you don't have the financial means to do so, we really do appreciate um, subscribing to the YouTube channel and liking our videos. It really helps us beat the algorithm. We're kind of the late YouTube comer. We didn't get in in those early days where people were able to build up those 500,000 really quickly. Um, So we appreciate that. Um, And as always... I want to ask you to keep the faith.